0: Our scripture reading this morning is going to be from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And as you're turning there in your Bibles or on your phones, I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Most sincere Christians know that they should pray for their government leaders. As Christians, most of us know that we should pray for our president. We even might think of praying for our senators or our Supreme Court justices, local government officials. Well, we understand that these are leaders whom God has set in authority over us to submit to, and we're to pray that they might govern and lead well. And during the recent pandemic, when each decision by government leaders was scrutinized and had immediate and far-ranging effects upon everyone, there seemed to be an uptick in these kinds of prayers. During that time, we all sensed our need to pray for these leaders, to pray that they might make wise decisions in order that we might lead a peaceful and and a quiet life. We pray that they would govern in a way that would allow churches to continue to meet at their own discretion. We prayed that they would enact policies to protect the health of all people. The times of, of social unrest and turmoil tend to drive us to pray for our leaders. The praying for our leaders also seems to trend with each election cycle in our country. As many of us, are citizens, are, are called upon to, to vote, we are forced to think more about our leaders and And that often causes us to pray for them. And 1 Timothy 2 is often the passage that Christians go to when we think about praying for those in authority. In these verses we just read, Paul instructs Timothy to pray for kings and all who are in high positions. We're to pray for them that we might lead a peaceful and quiet life. But what does that actually mean? Do we pray that they will advance laws to promote biblical morality? Do we pray for a Christian government? Do we pray for economic prosperity? What does it mean to pray for our leaders? And why does Paul call upon the church to do this here in 1 Timothy? As we look beyond the simple instruction to pray for kings and those in high positions in this passage, I, I hope the answers to those questions will become clear. As Christians, we know we should pray for our governing authorities, but I think we've often deviated from the main reason where to do so. And as we read this passage in its context, my hope is that you come to understand the bigger reason why Paul was so concerned that the prayer, church pray for all people and especially the rulers of this world. Now, it's been over two months since we were last in First Timothy. So let me just remind you that this is the letter from the Apostle Paul to his friend Timothy, whom he had left in Ephesus to help pastor the church there. And Paul began this letter by calling upon Timothy to guard the gospel. There were some people teaching false doctrine who weren't serving the believers in Ephesus out of love. But they were leading them away from the grace of the gospel. And so Paul wrote to them in chapter 1 about this. And he wrote to them at the end of chapter 1 to fight the good fight of faith. Which, which meant, in part, protecting the faith from individuals like two men named Hymenaeus and Alexander. Who threatened to undermine the faith with their teaching and with their lives. 1 Timothy is a letter to Timothy for the church. It begins with Paul addressing the immediate issue of false teachers who are threatening the health of the church. But having done this, Paul turns his attention to the public worship of the church in chapter 2. And the first thing he tells the church to do is to pray for the world, to pray for all people, including world leaders. And and what drives this charge for the church to pray is not just the general well-being of the Christian church. It's not simply economic prosperity. It's not merely societal stability. It's, it's not some notion of a Christian nation. What I hope you will realize this morning is what drives Paul's charge to pray is his heart for the advancement of the gospel. And Paul's heartbeat was right in sync with God's. What we see in these verses is that because of God's desire for the world to be saved, Paul called upon the church to pray for the world. And praying for for the world should characterize the life of a Christian because the gospel of Jesus Christ, which has saved us, has always been meant by God to be believed by the world. This section of Scripture isn't just meant to be the section you go to during elections or, or times of political need. These verses are more than that. They are foundational to our understanding of what the church is and what the church is supposed to be about. We are people who have been ransomed by Christ Jesus as a a part of God's plan and as a part of his desire to save the world. And, And we have a big part to play in the accomplishment of that plan through our prayers. And so this morning I want us to see this passage in light of Paul's greater argument. This is a passage about praying for the world, but this isn't a passage primarily about prayer. This is a passage that's really about the gospel and how prayer is a necessary response to those who understand the gospel. So what I want to do today is give you four simple encouragements to pray for the world. Four encouragements to pray for the world. The first three encouragements are reasons, and the last one is a reminder. First, I encourage you to pray for the world because it's urgent. Pray for the world because it's urgent. In verse 1, as Paul transitions from dealing with false teachers to the public worship of the church, he notes the importance of prayer. He he writes, first of all, of a first importance, above all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Paul isn't just suggesting that we pray for the world as a church. He's urging us to pray for it as a matter of first importance. If there is a church prayer request list, this should be at the very top. And he uses four words to describe the way in which we should pray. We should make supplications or Requests. And this word is often used in the New Testament to describe how we are to bring our specific needs and desires to God. We should also make general prayers. This is the most generic Greek word for prayer, and often, or it refers to our general communication with God. We should be bringing all things to God in prayer. And then Paul uses a word that is less common in the New Testament, which is translated here intercessions. Based on other Greek literature, this word seems to have the idea behind it of approaching a king or an authority boldly with a request. This is a confident petition to someone whom you have access to. And lastly, we're to make thanksgivings. Prayer isn't simply about bringing our list of needs and wants to God, but it's also an opportunity to thank God for his grace in our lives. Thanksgiving puts God in focus in our prayers. It causes us to think less about ourselves and more about God and his gracious and and generous dealings with us. So Thanksgiving should accompany all our prayers to the Lord. And we are to make supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings to God for all people. We are to be praying for all kinds of people. In Ephesus, the false teachers were likely swaying people back to a view of the Jewish law that was more restrictive in its compassion and inclusiveness. And Paul says to Timothy here and and to the church, what is of utmost importance in your worship is that you are to be praying for all people, not just people like you or people whom you tend to identify with, people whom you are willing to love and accept. No, you need to be praying for the world. This is an urgent matter of first importance. And by using those four words for prayer, Paul seems to be saying, as, as you pray for the world, you should be praying for specific needs and bringing those requests before God, appealing boldly and confidently to Him, being thankful for all that He has done. But Paul goes on, and he writes in verse 2, that the church should pray especially for rulers in this world. So we're to pray, especially for world rulers. Paul writes that we should pray for kings and all who are in high positions. Now, now why did Paul single out rulers here? He said, pray for all people as a church. But then he focuses us in on kings and those in authority. Why does Paul do this? Well, I think it's because we have a tendency not to pray for our leaders especially when we don't see eye to eye with them. You know, those in, in authority are easily and often despised. When things don't go our way, they become our scapegoats. Sometimes they even become our enemies. Now, uh, this time in history when Paul was writing, there had never been a, a Christian ruler. We have the benefit of living in a democracy with a history of many leaders who have been Christians or who have at least been influenced by Christianity. This wasn't the case for believers in the Roman Empire in the first century. Their king at this time was the notorious Emperor Nero, who would later have Paul executed. And even those in authority who should have been more sympathetic to Christians, the leaders of the Jews, they had crucified the Messiah, they were persecuting the early church. And so Paul was urging the church to pray for non-Christian authorities in a non-Christian culture. He was urging the church to pray for people whom they would be tempted not to pray for because these people were actually actively fighting against the kingdom of God. Yet still, Paul called the church to pray for them. Even those who had fallen short of their responsibility before God. And we too, by extension, are urged to pray for the rulers of the world today. Even if we disagree with them, And even if they are actively working to undermine Christianity. Why is this so urgent? Why is this so necessary? Well, we see at the end of verse 2 that it's because our ability as Christians to proclaim the gospel is affected by their decisions and by their governance. Paul not only calls us to pray, especially for world rulers, but he calls us to pray that these rulers would promote civil peace. Pray that rulers would promote civil peace. We are to pray for those in high positions in order that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. What does it mean for us to lead a peaceful and quiet life? It's a really important question for us to answer if we're to understand this passage rightly. What does it mean for us to lead a peaceful and in quiet life. Well, I think that the easiest way to explain this is to have you turn with me to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 19, we find the account of Paul's previous ministry in Ephesus. And the events that occurred while he was there seem to inform my understanding of what he means by a peaceful and quiet life in 1 Timothy. Acts 19 tells us that Paul had a a thriving ministry in Ephesus. If you look at verse 8, it tells us that he taught about the kingdom of God for three months in the synagogue there. In verse 9, we learn that he then moved on to the hall of Tyrannus, where he reasoned with Ephesians on a daily basis for two years. And Luke tells us in, in verse 11 that God was doing extraordinary things through Paul. Fear came over the people of Ephesus. And and if you skip down to verse 17, it it says that the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Verse 19 tells us that those who practice magic burned their magic books. And verse 20 tells us that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. But in verse 23, we learn that a man named Demetrius observed how Paul's gospel ministry was threatening his idol making business. And he and some others caused great confusion in the city. They they dragged Paul's friends into the, the city theater. There was chaos, there was there was confusion in Ephesus. But eventually, in verse 35, we see that the town clerk came and he restored order. And we have no reason to believe that he was a Christian. If you read what he says in the verses that follow. He doesn't seem to affirm Christianity, but he appealed to the people's reason. And he instructed Demetrius and the others with him to use the proper channel of the courts to resolve their complaints. And what happened was peace was restored. And after all this, Luke tells us in chapter 20 of Acts, verse 1, that after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples... And after encouraging them, he said, Farewell, and departed for Macedonia. Okay, so what can we gather from this account in Acts? Well, we learn that there was, when there was peace, when there was peace in the city of Ephesus, Paul was able to proclaim the gospel freely. But when disorder came, no one was able to get a word in. Only after a local government official came and restored order was Paul able to encourage the disciples again. And so I believe that when Paul was writing to Timothy and this same Ephesian church, he had this history in the back of his mind. Many of the Ephesian believers probably remembered this. So Paul called upon them to pray for their rulers in order that they might be able to lead a peaceful and quiet life. Why? In order that the gospel might be proclaimed with the ultimate desire that people would lead godly and dignified lives. Paul wasn't asking the Ephesians to pray that the rulers would allow them to have a comfortable middle class life. He wasn't even asking them to pray specifically for a Christian nation. He was calling upon them to pray for a non-Christian government to rule in in such a way that there might be enough peace for the gospel to thrive. It's no coincidence that the purity in which the early church grew and expanded after death after the death of Christ, was during the the Pax Romana, which literally means Roman peace. It's the roughly 200-year period that lasted until about 180 A.D., in which there was relative peace and prosperity throughout the Roman Empire. And though there was still persecution of Christians, and though the government was still pagan, the gospel was able to advance and spread because of that peace. This was also the case in the modern missions movement that began with William Carey out of England in the 18th century. The relative peace and prosperity of the United Kingdom allowed the church there to be a force in sending Christians around the world for the cause of missions. In stable countries with stable economies and religious freedom, The gospel often has more opportunities to advance. Now, certainly, this is not the only way that God works. He can cause the gospel to advance in the darkness of communist China. It's also not a guarantee that the gospel will prevail. The gospel can find extremely hard soil in peaceful places like modern-day Japan. But I think the idea here is that it's hard To be all about the spread of the gospel when you're just running for your life, like people are people are doing right now in Sudan as they try to escape from a country that is essentially collapsed. We should be praying for our government leaders to promote civil peace in our country and in other countries. We need to do this for the advance of the gospel. So how do you do this? Well, you can go to resources like Operation World Online or Voice of the Martyrs or PrayerCast. And you can find ideas for how to pray for the world and its leaders. You can learn about the current environment that different citizens are, are living under. And you can also just read the news. You can go to CNN, BBC, and Wall Street Journal to see what's going on in the world and pray for other world leaders this prayer for a peaceful and quiet life is is not a prayer for freedom from all affliction as believers paul writes in second timothy chapter 3 verse 12 indeed all who desire to live a godly life in christ jesus will be persecuted but this is a prayer on behalf of the world so that the gospel will have a better opportunity to flourish And I think you'll see that even more clearly as we continue to make our way through these verses. So how are we to pray? We're to pray urgently, bring our specific requests to God with boldness and thanksgiving. Who are we to pray to? We're to pray for the world, all people, but especially for those in positions of power and authority. What are we to pray for? Well, We're to pray that they would govern in such a way that Christians might be able to proclaim and live out their faith. Why are we to pray this way? Well, that's what comes next. The first encouragement from these verses is to pray for the world because it's urgent. The second encouragement is to pray for the world because it's it's what God wants. Pray for the world because it's what God wants. We learn in in verse 3 that this kind of prayer for the world is good. It's pleasing on the side of God our Savior. Well, that language of being pleasing on the side of God is the language of Old Testament sacrifices. Praying for the world is a kind of sacrifice that we can now offer to God, which pleases Him. As one writer has said, God God smiles when we pray for the world. Well, why? Well, because He desires all people to be saved and, and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Oh, when we pray for the world and its rulers and we pray for peace and quiet in society and in order that the gospel might have broad avenues to travel upon, it is pleasing to God because his desire, his, his wish is that all people be saved. Now, of course, the question that comes on the heels of this statement is, what about those who aren't saved? If God really desires that all people be saved and if he is truly an all-powerful God, then why do people die in an unsaved state? I don't want to pretend that I have the perfect answer to this. But what we do know is that God has purposes that cannot be thwarted. When he decrees things, they will come to pass. Because as the psalmist says in Psalm 115, our God is in the heaven and, and he does all that he pleases. But there seems to be a sense in which God has certain desires that he does not decree to pass in his perfect wisdom. And Charles Spurgeon has said, God has an infinite benevolence, which nevertheless is not in all points worked out by his infinite omnipotence. And if anybody asks me why it is not, I cannot tell. We get a glimpse of this in Jesus' life when he wept over Jerusalem. He said in Matthew twenty-three thirty-seven, 37, oh, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you were not willing. Jesus, his desire was for the people of Jerusalem to be saved under his protective wings. But that didn't happen. They they spurned him. They rejected him. In a similar way, God desires that all people be saved. But in his ultimate wisdom, he has not decreed that everyone will be saved. And in the end, this is because some were themselves not willing to be saved. Now, how God's sovereign choice and our human responsibility all work out is still hard for me to to totally explain. But that is the testimony of Scripture, and we are to hold those dual truths in tension. We shouldn't abandon what we don't initially like. And we can't afford to lose faith in what we can't fully comprehend. We trust that what the Bible says is true. And and the Bible is abundantly clear that God really desires that all people be saved. In these verses, Paul is simply trying to convey the truth that God so loved the world, all the people in it, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God so desired the salvation of all people that he sent his son into this world for all people. And we need to understand that this is the heart of our God. He is not just the God of America. He's not just the God of the educated. He's not just the God of people whom we might naturally get along with. God is the God who loves the entire world. And so when we pray for the world, Paul says it's a good thing. Because our prayers are synced up with God's desires. How pleasing are are your prayers to God? Certainly we can bring our personal burdens and concerns to the Lord in prayer. But is there a regular impulse in your heart to pray for the gospel to be accepted in the world? Do you pray for what God wants? As I think about my own prayers, I know that there are more times than I'd like to admit where I'm just praying for, other, for things like another couple's communication and marriage and someone else's illness and my own family's vacation plans. That when I pray that way, I'm praying to God almost as if he were the, the town therapist or the town doctor or the town travel agent. I can go to God as if he were just a, a small village god. Waiting to fulfill my my needs. But instead, I should be praying to God as the God who reigns over this world and who loves this world and and who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth of the gospel. If someone were to listen to your prayers, would they think that your God is just your personal deity? Or would they get a sense that He is the God of the nations? who wants the world to be saved. Church, we need to pray for the world. We need to pray with a sense of of urgency for the world. And we need to pray for the world because this is what God wants. This is the heart of our God. We can pray for good health, and we can pray for good jobs, and we can pray for good schools, and we can pray for new church buildings. We can pray for social causes. But what must we pray for? We must pray for what God wants. We've got to pray for the world. Pray for the world because it's what God wants. That's the second encouragement that Paul provides for us from this passage. Pray for the world because it's urgent. Pray for the world because it's what God wants. Third, we need to pray for the world because of what Jesus has done. Pray for the world because of what Jesus has done. Paul goes on in verses 5 to 6 to to present the gospel. God didn't just desire to save the world. He actually did it by sending his son into the world. And he wants everyone to know that. In verse 5, we are reminded that there is one God. That means that God is the only God of all people. Many cultures have erected false gods of their own imaginations. But the truth of the matter is that there is just one God. He is the universal God of all people. And there is only one way to him. There is only one mediator between God and men. And this is because of our sin. We have separated ourselves from the one holy God of the universe through our own defiance of his rule in our lives. And since the beginning of mankind, we have done what is right in our own eyes. And, and this has caused a great chasm to form between us and God. And no matter how hard any of us try, there was no way to bridge that chasm to God. Because we would never be perfect as he is perfect. If you have ever felt a sense of longing for what is beyond this life, coupled perhaps with a sense of confusion over what this present life is all about, then you have experienced that chasm. God made you for eternity to be with him. He made you to glorify him. But sin has driven you further and, and further from him and from his purposes for you. Yet your soul still longs for the God of eternity. It still longs to find lasting meaning in this life. And you can spend your life trying to find these answers on your own. But, but what you really need is someone to bring you back to God. And to the purpose for which you were designed. And that someone is the son whom God sent for us. The man, Christ Jesus, who was able to live the life we couldn't to bridge that gap. In the Old Testament, there's a, there's a book about a man named Job. And everything was going right in Job's life until it wasn't. There came a time when he lost everything and, and it caused great confusion in him. It caused a sense of disorientation in him. And during that time, he sensed his distance from God. And, and in Job 9.33, as he was talking to God, he said something very insightful. He said, there is no arbiter between us. There is no mediator between us who might lay his hand on us both. In other words, Job felt distance from God. He felt inadequate before god and he didn't know how to get back to him he desired an arbiter he desired a mediator to help remove the rod of god's affliction that was upon him what he needed and what we need is the one mediator between god and man the man christ jesus and jesus mediated for us by not only living the perfect life we couldn't live but he willingly voluntarily gave himself as a ransom for all and He did this on the cross as he gave up his life. His unstained life was the payment for our sin that was required so that we could be brought back to God. And he did this at just the right time in God's plan. It was the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus was our ransom. And and Paul actually adds a special prefix in the Greek to that word ransom. He doesn't just use the regular word for ransom. He has the prefix anti, which means instead of. And Paul is perfectly, or purposefully, I should say, emphasizing for us the nature of the exchange that took place on the cross. Jesus died there as a ransom instead of us. He was our substitute. Jesus died in our place. And and so if you follow the logic of Paul back to his initial call at the beginning of this chapter to pray, he's essentially saying... Instead of you, anti-you. Instead of you, Christ died. So pray. Instead of you, Christ died. So pray. Instead of you, in exchange for your life, Christ gave up his life. And so pray for this world. Pray that others would experience this glorious exchange. Many people have been saying that it's a great time to go to Japan because you can find some pretty good flight deals and the exchange rate is really good if you're come if you coming from the U.S. And, you know, the dollar is strong right now in comparison with the yen. And I admit that those flight deals and that exchange rate convinced me too that I should book a trip for my family to go to Japan in the fall. You know, that exchange rate gave me some extra motivation to go. Here Paul is telling us we've got an infinitely better deal. We've got access to a completely insane exchange ring. The perfect son of God is willing to offer as an exchange his flawless life for our flawed one. And if we experience that phenomenal deal, it should motivate us to pray that others would experience it as well. There is only one God. There is only one mediator for this world. The gospel is a universal gospel and its offer is available to anyone because Jesus gave his life for the world. We, as his followers, then are to pray for the world that they might also experience this once-in-a-lifetime deal. If we really understand the theology of the gospel... If we understand that the one God of this world sent His one Son to be the one way to Him because He loved the world and He wants the people of this world to know the truth, then we will pray for the world because this is what God wants and this is what Jesus came to do. Pray for the world because it's urgent. Because it's what God wants and because it's why Jesus came. Lastly, pray for the world, but also preach to the world. Pray for the world, but also preach to the world. In verse 7, Paul reminds us that prayer is just the first step. We're, to call to pray. we're called to pray for the world, but we must also preach to the world. Paul mentions his own calling. I was appointed a, a preacher and an apostle. And probably because some in Ephesus were questioning his authority or his credentials, he makes a parenthetical note. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying about this. And he emphasizes at the end of verse 7 that he was a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul is testifying to the heart of God for all people through his own ministry. He himself was, was teaching the Gentiles, not just the Jews. He was committed to teaching all people about the faith and the truth of the gospel. Through his own life, Paul shows us that prayer is just a start. In order to be saved, people must be taught the truth. ...in order to come to a saving knowledge of it. Do you see Paul's passion in these verses? Paul was so set on seeing the gospel advance in his life... ...that it informed every part of his ministry. It's why when he instructed Timothy... ...in the Ephesian church to pray... ...he he ended up calling upon them... ...to pray specifically that world rulers... ...would rule in such a way that doors for the gospel might be open in order that people might come to a saving knowledge of the truth, living godly and dignified lives. Church, let's listen to our friend Paul. Let's be better at praying for this world. We can't afford to be the, the frozen chosen. We can't just rest in the knowledge of our salvation, growing colder and colder each day to the things that God loves and desires. Instead, we've got to remember how much God loves this world. For he sent his son to give up his life as a ransom for us and anyone else in this world who's willing to accept that exchange. And this should thaw our hearts in order that we might be more evangelistic in our prayers. It's not wrong to pray for your personal needs and concerns. It's not wrong to pray for a a more moral society. It's not wrong to pray for Christian values to prevail. But what is wrong? What is wrong is failing to pray for the advance of the gospel in this world. As a church, we are to pray for the world because God desires all people to come to know Him. May this be our desire as well. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that you instruct us to pray for the world, but we need to first just pray for ourselves. Oh, We need your help to to rekindle in us a love for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel that is meant to go out into the world and to save this world. Father, we know that your desire is that all people be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And so, Father, would you ignite in our hearts a, a, a passion to see your gospel go out in this world as well. Father, and may that inform our prayers so that we might be a church that, that prays for the world and preaches to the world about the glorious news that Jesus has died as a ransom for their sins. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.